The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome back to the Utah Symphony, Utah Opera's Ghost Light Podcast, a behind-the-curtain look at the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm Carol Anderson. I'm so happy to have with me today my longtime colleague and friend, Christopher Macbeth, who is also my supervisor at the opera. He is our artistic director. Christopher and I have known each other since... September 1995. We were opera babies. So Christopher, tell me about your journey to this job. If we go back all the way, kind of a thing. Let's do. Yes, let's. Uh, Having grown up in the upper Midwest, music was sort of ubiquitous, and everybody was expected to sing, and especially if you were the son of a United Methodist minister. Uh, So that was just something that we did. And uh, music uh, was an expectation, quite honestly. And so we tried with piano. That didn't, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know I've heard that, stories. You know how that ended up. Uh, so uh, that didn't really take very well. So the next thing I know, I'm being shuffled at eight years old down to uh, the local college, the terrible college, to audition for a boys' choir. And that apparently worked. Yes. So um, I, that became a regular part of who I was until, of course, eventual voice change. But it was formative. Uh, it was We sang in, in many different languages. We traveled to Europe. We traveled all around the country. Uh, so it really instilled in me a love of voice, of singing, of music, and everything that it could be. Uh, move forward, as you might expect. I went through all the choirs, even show choir. There's even Uh, an instructional video on Hal Leonard that I'm a part of for show choir. I've seen this. We can post the link later. It's not pretty. It's not pretty. Let's not do that to people. So um, at all events, uh, so it became part of who I was, like like yourself, music, and and embarked, for better or for worse, on after high school on more studies at the college level in music and a music degree. Uh, And I really thought, I I had an opportunity when I was in graduate school to teach at the college level voice uh, at a junior college outside of Dallas. And then when we moved to Houston, I had a chance to uh, teach at a uh, junior college there as well. And really thought I was going to go on and and make that who I was. I was going to become the absent-minded professor doctor type and then teach at the college level and let me just interrupt um this is about when i met christopher uh he came down to houston i was in the houston opera studio which is a training program for young opera coaches and singers which has um lots of great opera singers who are making huge careers now started out in houston and christopher moved to houston at that time with his wife, Julie, who took a job at the Houston Opera Studio. So I, we first met and bonded over a shared love of the X-Files. It's so true. It's, it's not wrong, right? No, it's not wrong. That was Friday night. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, Friday night was a big night in Houston. Yeah, absolutely. Pizza and X-Files. So like anybody who's uh, adjunct faculty, I needed uh, I needed more money. So right. and, uh, <laughs> uh, there was a, a quick opening in, of all things, phone sales at Houston Grand Opera. And I thought, well, when I'm not teaching, I can go there and I can sell some tickets over the phone because uh, I knew what I was talking about uh, with operas and had some success doing that. And one thing led to another, and I just kind of bounced around the company in these part-time jobs 
uh, taking care of artists, helping out with a tour of Porgy and Bess. And then uh, eventually I was found myself strangely working right outside the office of the general director, who at that time, he's now retired, was something of a luminary in our mm-hmm, business. Absolutely. One day he called me into his office and he said, I'd, I'd like you to come work for me full time. And I had the audacity to look this luminary in the eyes and say, well, that doesn't sound like much of a career. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, And he said, no, he said, no, I get what you're talking about. Uh, And I was at this juncture. I was 27 at the time. And I thought, well, maybe it's time to get the doctorate. I'd made arrangements uh, with the university and a particular voice teacher to go ahead and move that direction. And he said, no, he said, I think you have some ability and gifts and talents that would be useful in this industry. I think you have the potential to be a leader uh, of an opera company. And he outlined a program, basically, that I would work for him for a a very short amount of finite number of years. At the time, uh, he would help me and and, uh, guided me in terms of what running an opera company is about, uh, made me his right hand on a lot of uh, important projects, mm-hmm. uh, actually had me, he said, I think you have this artistic stuff, but you need to learn to speak the language of your board, he said. So I need you to go back to school and study things like accounting and business finance and things like that. So he made it possible for me to do that uh, and go back to school for a number of classes. Uh, and then when the time came, uh, interestingly enough, he said, um, they're looking for a job that you're not qualified for at another opera company, but it's time for you to learn to uh, do interviews. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call them up and say that they need to at least give you an initial interview. Uh, I somehow ended up as a finalist, a final oh, candidate for this job that I was not at all qualified for. Um, so that was I did not get that job, which was perfectly fine, but they called me up and offered me a different job. This time it was something that I at least had some ability Mm -hmm. and understanding. Uh, And that was uh, to be the director of production. And what that means is all the physical things you see on stage and all the people it takes to get those physical things on stage, be it sets, costumes, props, uh, working with your um, local stage hands, that kind of a thing, arranging for the rehearsals to happen and hiring the right personnel, whether it's a rehearsal pianist Mm -hmm. uh, or or (laughs) others, and making sure all those people are there. And so I went back to David and I said, well, this is what they want to offer me. What, what's your th- what's your thought? And totally David style, he said, tell them you'll do that if they'll also make you the artistic administrator, oh. uh, which is the person that negotiates all the contracts for all the out-of-town guest artists. Um, and so I went back to that particular uh general director and and I was bold enough to use the words that I was given and said, I'll do this if you'll also give me that. Uh, And after a pregnant pause, that that wonderful gentleman, Bill Walker, said, well, you understand I make all the artistic decisions. And I said, yes, Bill. And I said, and after that, I said, then you put it all in my hands and I'll take it from there. And uh, and he actually bit. Uh, And the next thing I knew, I was moving to Fort Worth, Texas uh, in... Uh, to take over these two positions. And I tell you, it was a good thing that my wife was not with me for the first six weeks because it was the steepest, most difficult and frustrating learning curve I've ever had in my life. I showed up uh, and we and we were about to go into production in six weeks and we didn't have a set, we didn't have costumes, we didn't have contracts for a director or a lighting designer and nothing had been arranged with the local stagehand union for moving into the theater uh, in a very short amount of time. 
And if I could interject Please. at this moment, when we're planning things at Utah Opera, we're planning a year or two ahead at the least. And so six weeks, we've got everything lined up. I mean, aside from, you know, an emergency, which thankfully doesn't happen terribly often and, you know, an illness with a singer or um, someone who cancels at the last minute. So that's kind of terrifying to imagine six weeks and none of these personnel in place. It, it totally was. Luckily, during my time uh, with my mentor, uh, I'd made lots of contacts uh, and I pulled out every business card I had from people I'd met at other companies all around the country and burned up the phone lines and in a very short amount of time got a quick course in what it took to make all of these things, working with trucking companies, uh, make, getting everything necessary when you're renting costumes from another country, uh, learning all of those things very, very quickly. It's actually kind of amazing because now I realize, so I've known Christopher for 24 years, but I'm learning some new things even today. I didn't know this story about the six weeks out and not the personnel. And I'm thinking this is why when we have a, those very moments where there's a little bit of a challenge, he manages to stay very calm and just work the problem and find the solution. And I think it's because he had that baptism by fire back in you know 2000 or whatever that was. So that's fascinating. Do you ever sit here and wonder, because I know I do as an operatic person who's been doing this for 20, 30 years now, I think, how did I end up here? Because no one really at age eight, I wanted to be a paleontologist. I wanted to be a doctor. I wasn't thinking, if only when I'm grown up, I could be an opera coach. What was your dream when you were eight years old? I mean, isn't it? surprising how the path brought us here oh i think as an eight-year-old boy i was like everybody else i was gonna be a fireman or something along those lines but and i you know it's funny all the cues that i missed quite frankly along the way when i when i uh, auditioned for scholarships to go to college i auditioned for the great choir schools of the upper Mm -hmm. midwest so uh, many of those luther and places like that and but the biggest scholarship i got was at the one place where opera was known for happening uh, at Simpson College. Uh, and for the first six months that I was at college, I didn't really like opera that much. I, <laughs> you know, I'd, I had come across the music of Wagner as an early teenager and loved that because I had spent some time in Germany and loved the language. And so, you know, that, but that was an opera. That was just this recording I had. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the gentleman who ran the uh, school also was a founder of an opera company, uh, Des Moines Metro Opera. Um, and there's very few people who haven't had an experience with either the college or Des Moines Metro Opera in this business. And he badgered me for six months to take his course late in the spring in opera. And I, I said, Robert, I'm just not interested in this. And and finally, I acquiesced to this and took his course. And we, in, in three weeks, learned about 15 different scenes in opera, oh, memorized wow. and got them staged and performed these things. Well, that was it for me. All of a sudden, the opera bug had bit me really Absolutely. hard. And I dove into the repertoire and found people, even in other parts uh, of my life, that knew opera that I, I didn't know they had this passion and they were giving me recordings you need to hear this and you need to know who this person is and I just soaked it all up as much as I could 
So from then on, I was I was going to be an opera somehow. When I went to graduate school, I, I needed to study with this particular teacher and was trying to figure out how to pay for it. And all of a sudden, an assistantship came up uh, literally two weeks before classes were to start. And it was the assistantship, the assistant to the opera director at Baylor University, where I was to take care of the facilities. I was to assist in the rehearsals. I was to assist with working with the theater. And even at that point, I didn't think that I would be in the kind of position I right. am now as a producer. Absolutely. Uh, so there was yet another cue I kind of missed along the way. I can absolutely identify with that because when I was a child we would rush on Saturday morning at 10 o'clock to change the radio from the Metropolitan Opera broadcast we did not enjoy opera in my house and it wasn't until I discovered that I could pay for graduate school with an operatic assistantship playing for rehearsals that I realized oh there's a there's a thing to be done here and, and it was the same thing cues I always liked singers I was in choirs all my life and I didn't realize looking back, it's it's almost like a, when you do a maze backwards and you start at the end and you can easily find your way back. Right. But when you're doing it from the start, you have are presented with many options and you don't realize how clear the path is. So uh, really fascinating. We talked the other day about how um, our families, even years into this career, we say what we do in that we're not really sure <laughs> if they really get it because it's, it is, I mean, if you had become a fireman, everyone would know what you did. Exactly. Do you have a really quick 25 word pricey of how you <laughs> explain what you do? Well, the half joke I always tell people who ask that question is if there's any part of your experience that you didn't enjoy, I'm the one to blame. <laughs> Uh, because, uh, you know, at, at least from the germinal standpoint, um, and, and as you know, Carol, I like to include a lot of people in decision making and, and really make it a dialogue. But in the end, I'm, I'm the guy that, that makes the final decision about what, what's we're going to do, who's going to do it, um, how it's going to be presented, you know, um, and, and so... In short, that's kind of it. I make yep. the choices about the repertoire. I make the choices about the guest artists that are going to come in and bring this wonderful art form to life at the Capitol Theater. Um, and then all the way to the decisions of, you know, even as recently as last night, getting requests to spend more money on certain things. And, <laughs> and I have to say, no, we can't do that. Or on, on the very rare occasion, I'll say, you know, that that extra investment is going to make a difference. Mm-hmm. So it's really from the idea uh, all the way down to the execution um, in terms of how things work. As part of the Ghost Light podcast, we always ask our guest to tell a ghost story. And Christopher's been on this podcast in the, and had his conversation about a ghost story. So let's just talk a little bit more about a particular ghost who um, has haunted for years at the Capitol Theater. And this is George. I've only heard the stories, quite honestly. I, it, I've never had one myself, and I don't know any individual directly. And I have, of course, that favorite story of the of the security guard who was throwing paper airplanes from the grand tier down on the stage just for fun one night when he was st- trying to stay awake, and then went back to his desk by the stage door entrance, and all of a sudden, a paper airplane flew down the hallway and landed right on his desk, which, you know... I like playful ghosts. Yes, he's like a that? fun ghost. George um, is the ghost of an usher who worked at the Capitol Theater decades ago. 
I'm wondering, we're taking care of George's house. I wonder if George has decided that since we've taken care of the theater, it has been time to move on. We've had several renovations since I've been with Utah Opera. Well, the theater is venerable. I mean, it opened in, in 1913. So we've got 106 years, and it's gone through several different stages and renovations and lifetimes, everything from vaudeville to silent movie to hardware store in the lobby, (laughs) uh, and then back to being a full-blown theater again. Um, So it it could be he's gotten bored with us. I don't know. He's passed on. I was saying to you beforehand, there's that wonderful Utah theater right next door that that has been derelict for years. Maybe he decided that was a better place to haunt. Who does? So if any of you out there have had in this century a George experience we want to know about it because we want to hear if he's still in the Capitol Theater if he's moved to another venue or perhaps just moved on to the next step in his journey I look forward to bringing more guests throughout the season uh, from our operatic world but um, thank you Christopher for being the, the first for me to interview thanks Carol happy to be your guinea pig anytime Thank you to all of you who have listened today for joining us on the Ghost Light Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and like us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher and follow Utah Symphony on Spotify. The Ghost Light Podcast is produced and edited by Robert Bedont. Be sure to visit utahsymphony.org and utahopera.org for more information on upcoming performances. If you're not already a seasoned subscriber, click on the tickets button to learn more about the benefits of being a part of our family of music lovers. The Utah Symphony and Utah Opera season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation.